you're banking on other things that aren't definite and you make favors that you can't necessarily like, guarantee. You're just gonna keep feeding into it, hoping. You'll get burned once in a while, sometimes you'll hit it big. You know, I've been on both sides, I've been both people. It's hard out here. <laughs> Ain't that the damn truth? I'm Mike Pesquetto, it's selling out. I'm the casino that pays nothing when you win. Hello, you are listening to Selling Out, a podcast about music and money, where the rich get richer and the poor get drink tickets that weirdly cannot be applied to non-alcoholic beverages. I'm Mike Moschetto. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Ruben Polo, whom I sometimes like to refer to in private as the mayor of Philadelphia for his tireless work booking shows for touring bands at any place that will have them. And I do mean any place, whether it's a, a stranger's basement or a head shop or even an indoor batting cage, notably. He's also a musician himself, perhaps best known as a member of the Philly-based band Soul Glow, one of the absolute best and probably most important bands active in America. I know, I probably say that about all my guests' bands, and if I don't, then I guess I should start. But as a majority black punk band in a sea of mostly white DIY kids, their perspective is so vital, conveyed with such urgency and clarity, and frankly, it seems to only get more relevant as the sins of this country are exhumed and the faults of its political economy are under heightened scrutiny. And as if to put a really fine point on their acutely felt sense of inequity, in 2018, Soul Glow were pulled over on tour, driving through Missouri. They were searched and one member arrested for a nonviolent offense. And his bail was set considerably higher than normal. Was it 15000 And it had to be cash? <laughs> they wouldn't take a bail bond because... I forget why. They just wouldn't take bail... Like, they didn't trust him going back to Philly for probation. So he was literally living in Missouri for a little bit. He had a band out there and everything. Wow. <laughs> the old habits die hard, huh? I mean, fuck it. What else are you going to do? As the story goes, you were like followed on the highway by this cop. Is that right? Apparently he could smell the weed through his air vent in the car and then like followed us. That seems far-fetched. Yeah. Because his windows were up because AC. So, like, yeah. he got a nose like a bloodhound, this guy. He could have done it all. <laughs> he had to be a cop. Now, fortunately, Ruben and the rest of the crew set up a GoFundMe and quickly raised that 15 grand for bail and a little more on top for subsequent legal representation. And as the time honored tradition of crowdsourced fundraisers go, this one really takes the cake for me. I really wish it would have been a. Uh... Oh, our van broke down, help. Instead of, hey, they arrested our bass player. <laughs> we need to bail him out of jail. Talk about like an opportunity cost that not every band has to deal with. You know, as if there aren't enough fucking like pitfalls going out on the road. Like, Yeah, that was an experience I will never forget. Now you might be thinking, just because these guys were trailed and not let off with a warning and in fact apprehended, deep in the conservative interior of the United States, a country whose modern police forces grew largely out of slave patrols, 
you know, can we be sure that they were racially profiled? Well, I guess it's just impossible to say. Um, <laughs> I'm reminded of the legendary Western Mass screamo band Orchid, who once said something, and I'm paraphrasing, to the effect of, hardcore gets boring when kids get interested in merch and stop being interested in ideas or music. Well, if your brain is tingling at the prospect of turning over some new ideas, then Soul Glow Mindset may be right for you. It was a joy to catch up with Ruben, and our late mutual friend Steph DeBona probably would have been psyched to know that we were finally doing this. So without too much further ado, here is my chat with Ruben Polo from Soul Glow and Secret Plot and a million other bands. Enjoy! Tell me how, how you first kind of fell into like punk or screamo or DIY, however you categorize it. The first time I fell into like DIY was probably about 13. I found a place called The Cove in Roselle Park, the next town over. And that's where I first saw like a lot of bands that would end up like shaping my life. The most notable one is probably The Progress. Yes. Evan Weiss from Into It Over, its first band. And we were, they were like 14. We were like all the same age. They were the first emo band I saw. And then when high school hit, finding like the next level up, which was like small club band shows, Red Chord from a Second Story Window, like a lot of that stuff. Wow. I have not heard the name from a Second Story Window in a long time. Yeah, they were a favorite from when I was a kid. I cannot front. <laughs> um, were you already like a musician as you were getting into this stuff or did that come after that? I tried to be a musician and I was really bad at it. I was in a band with a kid who would end up becoming a proud boy one of the OG Proud Boys. Oh, shit. And uh, he kicked me out of the band because he said, you know, you don't have any talent. Like, you can't, you know. He also called me the token nigger, but that's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> I mean, that's foreshadowing, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really, I want to say I didn't get serious about playing music until 24. Okay. I'm a late bloomer. Like, my first tour was like three or four dates when I was 16 with the aforementioned band, but it's short-lived for me. They kept going. Mm. And then I couldn't get anything together for almost a decade. The reason that I ask about how you kind of fell into it is because to me, like you, you embody like carrying like a whole scene on your shoulders in a lot of ways. And like people don't just kind of fall into that by accident. So obviously like it really, you really took to it. It was a lot of self-worth aspects. It was something that took me a long time to find. And I wanted to like be a part and give. And I felt like the only way I knew how to give was throwing shows. How long into it did you start throwing shows? Like when was the first like basement thing you put together? I want to say like 23. Wow. Okay. And uh, I got spanked because down the street was a legendary show that to this day I regret not going to. <laughs> No, no, no. You have to listen to this lineup. If it's real, I can't remember. I could be like wrong. So we're saying Have Heart, Blacklisted, Let Down, Algernon Cadwallader, Title Fight. Holy shit. That was a house show. 
Oh my God. Where? In, in, is this in Philly now or is this still Jersey? Oh yeah, now we're talking Philadelphia. And uh, I threw some rinky dink show with a bunch of my friends, like four blocks over. You know, some people came, had fun. There were some hiccups, but uh, that was my first show. I then went through a show for maybe two years later. Out of just sheer regret for missing that title fight, have heart. Well, no, I then uh, I was I was I had been on and off homeless, and like the house I lived in after that, it was a one bedroom. Then after the one bedroom, I was homeless. Then I was like staying with someone. Then I went to jail for a week. Then when I got out of jail. I was living in a three-bedroom house with some friends who I would later convince to let me throw a show again out of necessity, less out of like want because I was in bands and I was friends with other kids in bands who we didn't know the cool kids. So that's how I started throwing shows for just like me and all my like friends who just really wanted to be a part but didn't know how to. You got to make your own fun. That's literally what it was. Can I tell you about the show that I missed that I, I mean, I wasn't throwing anything competing, but in 2002, this was like a town over from us in Lawrence, Mass. And it was at a Knights of Columbus Hall. And it was like, I'm, I just had to Google the lineup, but it was Bury Your Dead, Antarabe, On Broken Wings, Nora, The Acacia Strain, The Red Cord. It was like, it started at like 3 p.m. and went until like maybe 11 or until they started taking all the ceiling tiles down and they could never throw shows there again. It was one of those. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, Well, so the first exposure I had to you was through your band Secret Plot to Destroy the Entire Universe. Uh, What stage in the journey was that? Was that your first band that did like really heavy duty touring? Yeah, that was the first band I ever was in that like... My first tour with them was like a little East Coast thing. And then like my next tour was a full U.S. So it went from like zero to 60? To this day, I've never experienced anything that went that fast, that quickly, that crazy. That's what I think of as kind of like the archetype of like a DIY band. Because you guys self-recorded, self-mixed, self-booked, self-managed, right? That was all. Oh, yeah. That was just, that was a lot of Dan... Dan had done some significant touring with his old project, Trunks and Tails. Coming out of that, like he was like the main person who got us started. And then eventually, like I had my own contacts and like we were all just kind of like adding in to each other's flavor. Yeah, I think it was it was the same for me where at first I was the new guy and then and then uh, I started doing a little bit more. And then until I was doing everything. Um, But. At what point <laughs> at what point do you earn the reputation of being like the guy in Philly who can get people a show? I never knew that was my Or is that just are you learning this right now? I like had heard that before at one point and I'm no longer that guy. There's definitely a lot of younger kids who are like doing the work that like I couldn't do or much better than I ever could and like I'm really happy to say that I'm not quote unquote that guy. It's a big <laughs> but... it's a big responsibility. I mean, I was just, the most I think I did in one year, if my numbers were correct, were there was like two or three years where I did like 150 shows. That's And then on top of that was working for Live Nation, like working their shows at the Barbary. Was that your main job for, during those years? I did that. I did booking at a club for a little bit. Um, that went terribly because I didn't understand the politics of it all. And no one was really telling me how to do it. And then the one time I did get a good show, I broke the rules of no hardcore. Like, do you want a bottom line or not? Yeah, like I sold out the room with a, it was Foxy and Lemuria. 
and I put like a secret hardcore set in that lasted like maybe eight minutes. And I got yelled at for it. And I, that was my last show. <laughs> Damn. Boy, so the pandemic must have been a real fucking interruption for you, huh? Oh, it was goddamn beautiful. <laughs> I, it's funny. Like, at first, I was very, very upset about the whole thing. It's been a big break. For the first time in my life, like, for an extended period of time, I had nothing. I didn't have to book a show. I didn't have to message anybody. Nothing to promote. I just kind of got to just not... So what did you end up doing? And st- like, what are you doing now, for example? I'm working. You know, I still work at the same. I still work at a bar venue, uh, work security, door guy stuff. You're like the mask compliance guy now. Hmm. Am I the mask compliance guy? Has it has that been added to your slate of things that you have to worry about? You know, I'm a I'm a gig cop and it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the gig cop. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, though, you know? I mean, well, like anything, like, if I'm going to be a person who has to, like, be that, I try not to be, I wouldn't want to be anything that I can't get behind in that aspect. So, like, I'll give a warning. Like, I don't like to, I don't, like, put my hands on people if I don't have to. Like, I really try not to. Unless, like, they're, like, being violent. And then it's like, no, bro, you have So, like, I find some solace in that. But, like... But also there's no gigs. So like, I'm literally just a door guy. (laughs) I'm just checking IDs, making sure no fights break out, make sure people are wearing masks. Is it busy still? Is it busy at this point? What's the deal? Busier than you would expect. (laughs) Like we hit capacity like most weekends. The, The allotted capacity that is allowed by the state, not like, yeah. Right. Like 50 people and like we're calling it. Do you at least get some sort of preferential, like, I don't know, place in the vaccine line if you're, if you're. I'm actually fully vaccinated. You are? Sick. Uh, You know, my dad always yelled at me for being fat and a smoker. And for the first time in my life, it helped. So you're basically your whole like professional life and like extracurricular life, everything revolves around nightlife, right? So how do you how do you balance that like very easily conflicting schedule of like, you know, working Live Nation some nights and then like, on the nights off, you're kind of like counter programming basically your own shows. There were nights when I was doing both in the same. I was like leaving one gig to go back to the house gig that had someone else running. And taking the money I made from that gig and putting it into the bank just in case. If the show wasn't going well, which like, let's not lie, you know, it happens. It does. It does. But part of the thing that comes with the reputation of being like the guy who can get you a show, for you at least, is like my experience whenever you would book Aviator to come through Philly, we were always taken care of. Like you always went out of your way to make sure that we were like, 
you know, obviously not every show can be a banger, but like either way, like we got a roof over our head, we have money for gas and then you'd make it up to us the next time. Like you'd put us on something else the next time we were coming through. So that was always the hope is like, if you were, if we were friends or like your band was cool or like whatever, if I knew I had a really big show coming up and I knew you weren't that far, I'd be like, you should hop on this show. Like that. Remember that new year's gig? Yeah. That was a really great time. That was a really great time. And the, the last time we were there before that was like the second time we played at What's it called? Creep Records. Yep. And it was like a little sparsely attended. But, you know, those these things happen. Obviously, you know, we're not a draw. So it's like, <laughs> but you were always you were always very cool to us. And like, it's the kind of thing you when you're, you know, booking shows for like Secret Plot or whoever, you kind of hope for the same thing. Right. That's kind of what you're banking on. That's the way it works. It's just like, you know, try to help out, hope that they can one day maybe return the favor. Obviously, no one's indebted to us if we do a show. But like, if you can give us a name or like, just point us in a direction. This is the only way it can succeed, at least. Like, if I can't throw your show, maybe this person could throw your show. And like, now you've met this person. Maybe if they do you a good show, you go with them next time. And like, that's how the cycle keeps going over and over. I feel like you have like, started bands just to play one show that you booked that needed supports or something i have done that. <laughs> <laughs> fuck all right you clocked me that's fucking, <laughs> that's so cool no one else would do that though yo we didn't have enough screamo bands that's actually that's how soul Glow started that was literally why that band started i guess on the flip side of that did you find when you were trying to book dates for secret plot or for soul glow even that like there was kind of this weird expectation of that reciprocity like did you ever feel like people were booking either of your bands not because they were that enthusiastic about the music but because they were like oh this could work out for my band later that sort of thing you you know too like you know when it's like that you can feel when those shows are like that and it's not a common thing it happened like you know once in a blue moon and it was always like kind of a funny thing to me because it was just kind of like i don't have control over like what happens the night you come so like yeah, if you want to bank it on like that, like good luck. Like I hope, I hope too that nothing weird happens that night, and your show is good when you come by. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all do, right? But it's like some. If I think about this too much, I'll go crazy. But there's a lot of built-in, like you know, I'm doing this. I'll call in a favor later, sort of thing. Grosses me out. I mean, DIY is a pyramid scheme, for lack of a better word. And I'm talking about like everything from like bands, people, to labels. It's just like you're. Banking on other things that aren't definite and you make favors that you can't necessarily guarantee, but like, you're just going to keep feeding into it, hoping like I'm going to get in a car and drive eight hours and really hope that there's something that exists. And like, sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes if it doesn't work out one time, they make it up the next time and the cycle continues and continues. You'll get burned once in a while. Sometimes you'll hit it big. You know, I've been on both sides. I've been both people. You know, it's hard out here. <laughs> there can be a sort of similar transactional aspect with Soul Glow, you, you know, majority black punk band, right? I remember vividly there was like a, I think it was like a Facebook post from a couple of years ago being like, just, yo, don't book us just to like check a box. Yeah. I mean, that was also a weird time in DIY culture. We were all, everyone was still trying to figure it out like diversity became a really big thing. So like no one really knew how to go about it. People were still like trying to figure out their footing on it. 
And it was very weird to go from like people who would have never hit me up for shows, then all of a sudden being like, hey, does Soglo want to play the show? And it was just kind of like, do you, you don't even like us. Yeah, I don't know. Do you want us to play the show? Yeah. And then like other times it'd be like, you were asking us to play with a lo-fi bedroom pop artist because they're black. And like, I feel differently about it now than I did then. Representation is important. The, the line between tokenization and representation is as thin of a line as who's talking to you. And that's really where the problem lies in it. It's just kind of like, you don't know who's asking and you can't tell. So you just kind of have to navigate at your own speed. I want to say most of the time it's not malicious. But at the time, it felt really weird and raw because it was just like, y'all don't like us. And now you like, do you like us because we're black or do you like us? Either way is cool, but just like think about that before you message us on like some weird shit about playing a gig. I mean, you want to be liked for your artistic output. Yeah, but also like I have to, I have to remember that like you're booking a show. You don't always like the band you book. Like I've definitely booked shows where like I may have not necessarily liked the band, but I knew that they would be good for the band that I was booking. Yeah. And that's different. You know, that's like more of a business aspect and like trying to do right by your friends. Yeah. So, like, as I've gotten older, my stance on it has changed, and I'm, like, less aggressive towards it. But I still don't want to be anybody's fucking token. No, and I I mean, I think as we're standing at the precipice of shows coming back, like, I think people will come at it from a more, I don't know, good faith perspective, I hope. This is years ago. Nobody knew what they were doing. Like, we were going through, like, this is hardcore. It's getting, like trounced for like representation and like all these other fests were getting trounced for representation and like it was easy to get kind of like lost in like the fat of it all and like the chaos and feeling like you're being used or something I've talked to a few artists who have released music in the time frame of this pandemic. But Soul Glow put out a 7-inch last year on Jeremy Bohm's label. Was it kind of like ironic to kind of get this big bump in recognition and this broadening of your audience when you can't really meaningfully do anything to like tour on it and like gig on it? Is that like just the irony of all ironies? I uh, I want to say something, but I know that it is too much to say in public. <laughs> we can we can leave it. We can table it. Um, it's nice to get a big bump in listeners, and not because a black person died. <laughs> <laughs> if you want the honesty of it, like that's that's been a big thing that I noticed with our listeners on like Spotify is like. If you look at our listeners, the day that a black person was shot dead, and then you look at our listeners the day after, it's jumped always by like a couple hundred. Wow. (laughs) As soon as people are like, need black punk artists, like, because something terrible has happened, our listeners like, pop up. That's, if your instinct, if your gut goes to like, 
I need some way to like really channel my injustice. Like Soul, Soul Glow presses that button, I think. And in, in a way that there wasn't really like that, that wasn't really being spoken to in, in this genre so much. Or maybe it is, but it's different coming from like a different artist. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a weird, it was a weird thing. Obviously you have songs about like police and policing and, and about blackness in America and about, you know, your material conditions and about politics on this broad scale. But um, Pierce is also not afraid to kind of train his sights on, you know, the punk scene, like the so-called punk scene, like, you know, white DIY is a dead end path, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, he always kind of felt some type of way. Do you think that message is like received very typically by like, you know, by like white DIY, for example? I believe they hear us and they understand what he's saying, but also there's an obvious, like, they're not actually reading the lyrics or if they do, they think it's more of a, uh, that's not about me. I mean, it's a lot of, a lot of people do that. It's not about me though. Yeah. It's, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. It's hard to take that kind of responsibility be like, Oh, I can't be the bad guy here. Yeah. It's, it's a hard, it's a hard game to pick up on. It's a hard game to play. You never really know when it's, Hmm. These are good questions. Sorry, I wasn't really ready. For yeah, this. no, it, no, it's. I'm not sure it's even really pertinent to the show that I try to make. I'm just, you know, I've been reading the lyrics, and it's really important. You know, it's like people need to hear that kind of stuff to consider it. Like white DIY is like shining a light on, like, oh, it's very easy to feel othered in this community that considers itself so like enlightened and inclusive and woke or whatever. You know, the problem with it becomes is. If they were to perceive the lyrics like too heavily, it becomes like this weird activism or like this overtly political activist band, which we're not. We're just four people just trying to get by. And then if you don't read it at all, it gets kind of weird. <laughs> I don't know. I can't really tell. We play too many different types of shows for me to get a good grasp on like how it's been received or who's receiving it or how they're actually taking it. And people are super weird with us in person because they think we're super aggro when really we're just all like kind of just joking around all the time and smoking. The, the shit that I love is the <laughs> like calling out playing benefits for political candidates and stuff. <sighs> yeah, that was a weird period in time. We, we were getting asked to play a lot of benefit shows for like Bernie Sanders and we're just kind of like, no offense to Bernie Sanders, but what? You don't want to like hitch your wagon to that. Hell no. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing, it's not always. And they, they, maybe they just want, you know, like, oh, this band has a following. Like, this will be good. You connect to the things that look similar to you, whether it be politically, physically, ideological, like, you know, I'm the same way. Like, I'll definitely be more liable to give a band a shot with a black member than, let's say, an all white band. And, like, I don't mean that out of rudeness, it's just like how it is. Like, I love Seven Angels, Seven Plagues. The only reason I ever listened to that band was because I knew they had a black drummer. I even owned the shirt with him on it just to be like, yeah. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with wanting to elevate that stuff, you know? Yeah, no, you just, it just, it brings a, a level of comfort. And I think that's a sociological thing. I thank Solo for getting me more in touch with parts of myself that uh, I never really had because I'd always been in bands with majority white people. Mm. 
it was cool to be with people who didn't make me feel so weird when I was like, are we getting stared at at this rest up? And I was like, oh yeah, we're definitely getting stared at this rest up. And I'm like, cool, it's not just me for once. Finally, I don't feel crazy. <laughs> like little things. Absolutely. There's a pretty good chance that at least shows, if not touring, will maybe be back, I don't know, within the end, before the end of the year, right? If there was like one thing you could kind of like wave a magic wand and change about the way things were, what would it be? I wish, hmm, I wish that the arts were funded by the government like Canada to some degree from what I've heard, just because there's so many acts and I feel like a lot of people get discouraged because they can't find their place in their local community because it's just hard. There's just so many. But with more places to like find avenues to play, things being funded, and the be funded, more people would be able to have the opportunity to like find their place in music. Whether it be you're a fresh new band, we have a community center for brand new bands to just like get their legs, start out, do their thing. And like you could put, you know, like that season touring band like at a small club. There's more places to put people. It's not all like the pressure on like, here's this one house taking 20 shows a month. And then like you're trying to bring these new bands in, but there's not enough, you know, there's just too much going on. Like there's not enough money for it. Everyone's just trying to like hold about the seat of their pants. So that would be something that would be nice because it would open up a lot of avenues for a lot of other bands, a lot of other like tiers of bands, especially. You booked uh, the Sparrows guys before, right? I literally was thinking about Sparrows the entire time I said that. I had Dan was one of the first guests on the show, and uh, he, when we brought that up, and I was like, "You motherfucker! Like, what a good deal!" But that's why a band like Sparrows can still exist. I mean, from the sound of things, it sounds like it's a little hard to get. It's not just like you're in a band. Here's a wheelbarrow full of money. I mean, yeah, there's definitely there's no way in hell that that can be an easy process. Because if that was the case. We'd all move to Canada or try to move to Canada and be in the process ourselves. Shit, I thought about it. I'd be lying if I said I didn't either. <laughs> so I guess the other side of that is like, just from the volume of, of booking that you've done, you've seen bands at like all different stages of the game, right? You've seen like bands who don't have their shit together at all and they're on their first tour and bands who are like super pro and have been out for three weeks, but they look fresh as a daisy. You know what I mean? Yep. What would be your like one piece of advice to like a, a band that's going to try to book their first tour, like, you know, in the fall of this year? Don't do more than you actually know you can do. And I mean that in every possible set scale. Like if you're, if you're just starting out, don't book a three week tour. <laughs> if you only know five people, Go to those five places. Hit up people if you can, but don't force it. Actually, that's it. Don't force it. And I mean that across the board. Don't force a tour. Don't force members of your band to do things they don't want to do. Because, like, you'll you'll end a band real quickly, like, trying to drag people kicking and screaming into tours. I feel really self-conscious that, like, I join a band and, like, try to, like, professionalize it and go, like, all right, we got to hit the road and fucking do this and that and record. And, you know, people just kind of want to play and have fun and shit. And, like, I have worried that I have been the person that takes that out of that for them. 
And it all comes down to like what everyone else's ambitions are and lining them all up, right? Like kind of setting goals and, and making them happen to the best of your ability and like understanding if it doesn't. Yeah. And that's what I mean. It's just like, don't force it. Cause I definitely have been in bands where I was the one being forced to do things I didn't really want to do. And then I ended up quitting early or vice versa. I'm like dragging these people to play shows they're not ready for. And then, you know, they eventually don't work out. So like, if there's one thing I've learned over there is like, just don't force anything. I like it. If it feels right, you'll know. As always, if you liked what you heard today and you want to support Ruben and his musical endeavors, whether it's Soul Glow or Rid of Me or any of the other bands that we actually didn't even talk about here, I'll have links and info, everything you could possibly want in the description of this episode. Additionally, I will update the long-running Spotify playlist of nearly all the songs featured on the show so far. If you have any money left over from the cool Soul Glow records you bought and you want to support Selling Out with a small financial contribution to help me make the show, you may do so, I won't stop you, at patreon.com slash podcast. Of course, you can also just leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice. High ratings, positive reviews are strongly preferred as it helps people find the show. But nothing helps people find the show more than a simple recommendation to friends. Your cool friends, your uncool friends, I'll take all comers. If you want to reach out with a question or a comment, you can email sellinoutpodcast at gmail.com or I'm on Twitter at sellinoutad or on Instagram at sellinoutpodcast. Theme music by Such Gold, cover photo by Nick Di Natale. I'm Mike Moschetto. Thanks for listening. <laughs>